Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm Michael Fragan on the Nachum Siegel Network. NachumSiegel.com, JM in the AM.org. And thank you for joining us. We have a great show this evening. And we have former Assemblyman Ryan Carbon, now a blogger, pundit, lobbyist, lawyer, and all-around commentator. And we have David Mikofsky, a fellow at the Near East, Washington Institute for Near East Policy, as well as the Council on Foreign Relations, talking about Obama and Israel and all things with regard to the Middle East. But very quickly, we'll just uh, go to a couple headlines, and that is, number one, we talked about CPAC last week with the Conservative Political Action Conference that was in D.C. and had snub of some of the moderate Republicans out there. Of course, it's they're entitled. It's a private run conference and so they're entitled to snub however they want but they snubbed Chris Christie and they snubbed uh, a Bob uh, uh, Donald from uh, Virginia and it's kind of interesting when you know, the direction that they're going is that the straw poll winner is Rand Paul it shouldn't be surprising but it's interesting Senator Rand Paul for Kentucky a outspoken conservative libertarian who actually held the Senate floor uh Two weeks ago for 14 hours on an issue really that had nothing to do with the issue at hand. It was over a filibuster of the CIA chief nominee. And uh, he wanted to talk about drone strikes and the possibility of Americans being targeted by drone strikes. And the fact is that the, the fact that the United States government seemed to reserve the right to kill Americans. And it was a principled stand. I will give him that. And I think that's what a lot of people like about Rand Paul. They like the fact that he stands on principle and he is not going to be deterred from standing on that principle. And for the crowd at CPAC, that was really key. That was critical. That was important. That was something that they feel that is lacking in a lot of other politicians. Number two was Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida, who's kind of viewed in the Republican Party as the great Latino hope, kind of the person who can bring Latinos back to the GOP. And why does this matter? Why does CPAC matter in 2013 when we just had a presidential election and the next presidential election is three years away? Well, it matters because historically over the last couple decades or last couple cycles, I should say, that the person who has won the presidency, uh, sorry, who has won the presidential nomination on the Republican side has finished one or two in the CPAC straw poll. And, of course, this straw poll doesn't shouldn't really matter, but that actually gives a little bit of momentum. Now the question comes, what kind of Republican Party is there going to be? Because at the same time that this was happening, the Republicans were self-flagellating, at least officially, that you had the commission study called the Growth and Opportunity Project, commissioned by the RNC chairman, Reince Priebus, who said, why aren't we connecting with younger voters? Why aren't we connecting with all these demographics? And I've said this before and probably allude to it later in the show that the Republicans have become the party of the angry white men. They're not reaching out to ethnic groups. And as the ethnic groups become more numerous, minority groups become more numerous. The fact is that they might have a good message of reform, of lower taxes, of all kinds of better government, more efficient government. That message is not getting through. What's getting through is the hot button social issues that are litmus tests over and over. Guns, gods, and the third one uh, is 
just to say it on the show, guns, gods, and gays have been a rallying cry for Republicans, and it seems to get distract a lot of candidates over and over. So just uh, to conclude this uh, opening uh, diatribe here, as far as what they're looking to do and how they're looking to reinvent themselves, I'm not sure exactly. I, I haven't figured Rand Paul out yet. I know that the, he definitely leads the libertarian wing of the party, and I think that he is a certainly he's unlike his father. I think he's more open on the Israel issue, but he is probably a non-interventionist and comes from that wing of the party. And that's an interesting trend amongst the Republicans that you have a very strong non-interventionist side, probably reaction to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and 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 the like, and that there is definitely that feeling that the Republicans need to retreat a little bit on that front. I feel that it's the other fronts that they need to retreat on. I think a muscular foreign policy is something that a lot of voters actually embrace, that they're looking for. They're not looking for the for the United States to sit back in every single conflict. But uh, we will see. We will see. And as I've just to say it again, for a lot of politicians, it's not the general election that matters. It's the primaries. And they're afraid of the primaries and they're less afraid of the general election. So there are increasingly going if you're a democrat they're increasingly going to the left and if you're a republican they're increasingly going to the right and as we're seeing from what's going on in washington it's not really that good for the fate of the country this is spin class and we are here with former assemblyman ryan carbon from the law offices of ryan carbon also the author of a new blog called carbon copy very interesting take on new york politics of rockland county and uh, and beyond so, Ryan, welcome to the show, or back it is to the show, to be I should with say. You, Michael. Yes, it's your second appearance, I, I should add. Well, you know, I, I was on the show, you know, before it had achieved such fame and notoriety, so I'm, I'm glad now that uh, you're broadcasting to the four corners of the earth you had me back. Well, always looking for notoriety, certainly. So notoriety <laughs> works for some people in politics, so certainly, some, certainly for some of your old colleagues uh, up in Albany. Uh, I think... Just to draw very quick attention to, as I was going to do a little bit later, maybe in a closing note, but uh, the saga of one uh, William Boyland. I mean, this guy um, seems to, there doesn't seem to be an indictment that doesn't uh, come along weekly for this guy. Uh, you know, I, I uh, you know, I read about those things in the, uh, in, in, in the paper. You know, m- most of the people who I've worked with in, in public life are, are good and decent people. Um, I served with Assemblyman Boyland, and we always had a, had a good professional relationship, and you know, I, I, it's never a never a pleasant thing to see someone you know um, go through legal difficulties. So you know, I, I wish him and his family well, and that process just takes its course, and you know, the outcome goes forward. But you know, one of the things when you do the opportunity to work with people every day, and they do wind up in you know uh, situations that you don't want to see folks in, um, you know, uh, my, my thoughts always go to the families of the people involved. I've been a public figure, and you know, there are a lot of when you're in the public eye. And, and, and you wind up drawing adverse publicity. There are a lot of people who suffer as a result of that. So, you know, my thoughts are with, are with the Boylan family. Absolutely. Well, that, that's, that's very kind of you. And obviously there's a, a certain amount of solidarity within, uh, within the ranks. And uh, I appreciate that. But let's talk politics since we're here. Uh, we have uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo, who was certainly on the moderate track for quite some time, and now seems to be drifting ever so slightly, or maybe not so slightly, over to the left, as it seems. Uh, his approval ratings are dropping a little bit. He's trying to play a little bit to the to the left 
on a number of things. He has now, it's now seems that in the budget there's going to be an extension of the millionaire's tax, the so-called millionaire's tax. So uh, what, what's going on now? Where where do you feel that Andrew Cuomo is going? And is it because he doesn't expect to draw a strong opponent in 2014 that he feels that he can go ahead and uh, make a little, little leftward drift in advance of 2016? Yeah, I, I think Andrew Cuomo was very clear when he was running for office that he was, uh, you know, progressive on, on social issues and, and he was, uh, you know, up the center on fiscal issues. And I, I think he'd be hard-pressed to find um, – you know, a, uh, a democratic leader who has really put more effort into uh, reining in the cost of government and holding down um, government spending uh, than Andrew Cuomo. The, the tax cap has been enormously um, successful in putting pressure on uh, suburban communities um, to keep their property taxes in check, and I think that's a that's a huge victory. The most vociferous opponents of the tax cap came from the left, and and he took that on. And, and made a democratic assembly which resisted the tax cap for years, um, swallow it. So, so I, I think that he has very intelligently used his political muscle. I think he's doing, frankly, an outstanding job as, as governor and may, maybe, um, a little bit uh, biased because I like the guy personally, but I, I think that if you're an observer of this, I think that this is a, this is a governor who has very intelligently picked his priorities. He fights battles that, uh, that he thinks he can win. Um, doesn't waste a lot of time on on nonsense, and I think New Yorkers are getting exactly the governor that they thought they elected. How much of it is about running for president? I mean, that that's the big question. Is is he is now clearly looking at uh, his higher ambitions? No, I, I, I think that to the extent you know, there's a Cuomo narrative that would sell nationally. I think it's predicated on on effectiveness. You know, you look back, you look at governors who who run for president. You look at um. You know, you look at Mike Dukakis, or you look at you look at Bill Clinton, and and it was about their records of effectiveness and the difference that they made in their state. So I don't really think that you're going to see Andrew Cuomo offer an ideological rationale if he were to go national. I think he would offer an effectiveness rationale, and I think that he has strong strong claim to that. He has been an excellent governor. He has taken on powerful forces in his own party when he thought it was the right thing for the people in the state. Um, and to the extent that people are saying he's, you know, somehow moving all the way to the to, to the left, he's fashioning reasonable compromises with uh, the Republicans in the Senate in a center-left, diverse state. Um, New York's a very hard state to govern. I think if you look at the national the natural disasters we've had and the way he's responded, I think if you look at the um, some of the uh, social challenges uh, that New York um, has had, and he he has done the very difficult work of making New York uh, a leader on some of those social issues, and that's not easy in bringing people to the table. So I, I, I really give him two thumbs up. Well, let's talk for a second about the ungovernableness of New York and as it relates as to a feud he's having with his state chair, Stephanie Minor, of uh, the mayor of Syracuse, uh, over what's known as pension smoothing, which I guess is deferring pension payments down the down the road, the proverbial kicking the can, and she's saying, oh, this is a terrible plan. This is not a good plan for cities because it's just going to add to costs later. And he's made it the centerpiece of this year's budget, or one of the centerpieces for this year's budget. What's what's going on there, and how does that relate to the important uh, outside of New York City uh, issues or the greater pension issue that's going to be that's going to come to a reckoning in, in New York State pretty soon? 
New York's municipalities are, are struggling. There's no doubt about it. You know, the, the county that I live in, 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 in Rockland, you know, has a uh, $100 million deficit. Um, the county fundamentally broke. They have a nursing home, which is bleeding funds. And, and the state mandates have, you know, increased over that period and certainly played a role in some of the challenges facing our municipalities. Um, and I, I think that some of the um, drama around the pension smoothing proposal is, is really a, a little bit overheated. It, it's an option that municipalities would have, that independently elected officials would have, to determine how to deal with their own uh, pension situation. And it's a financing tool. Municipalities often complain that they don't have enough financing tools available to them. So I think providing another financing tool um, for municipalities for whom it makes sense you know, I think that makes sense. But ultimately, the voters in those municipalities are going to judge whether or not it's a, it, it's a good idea. But he isn't um, going know, after I, he isn't all going after the real money issues for municipalities and counties and the like, like some of these mandates, uh, the tribal amendment and the Wix law, and some of these laws uh, that are uh, you want to call them anachronistic? I'll call them anachronistic uh, that have been around forever, which add so much to the costs of government doing anything in New York State. So there, I think there's consensus across both parties that there needs to be a comprehensive, long-term restructuring of the way local government works. There has been no greater advocate of that than, than the governor who's pushed for consolidations. Uh, but one of the interesting things you see, Michael, is when taxpayers sometimes have a choice between a slightly lower tax bill and the services that they have grown attached to or the identity of the school district that they live in, you know, they, they stick with it. So New Yorkers often are willing to pay the premium um, for, you know, more expensive government. And that, that's something that bedevils, you know, public policy folks because we all know we need to change these things and the taxpayers are suffering. What I don't think has happened is taxpayers are not, are not convinced that a wholesale overhaul of the way we do local government in New York would actually really put more money in their pockets. And I, I think that the the communications challenge for local government reform is to be able to quantify for New Yorkers why they're better off with reformed local governments, why they're better off with fewer local governments. But, you know, these, these problems developed over the course of the past 50 years, and no governor is going to be able to solve them overnight. But I think that there have been a, a lot of good initiatives out of this administration. I think we're going to continue to see that over the course of the, of the, of the next two years. This is not a governor who's wasting his time. So you mentioned... In your last and, and, and I and I and I will say I am an unabashed and proud cheerleader for this governor. I certainly sounds doing, like it. I, so. think, I think he's doing. I think he's doing a phenomenal job. Um, he's coming in for some criticism now. It's year number three. You know, you're going to take a little bit of a hit in terms of your numbers if you look historically. Um, gubernatorial approval numbers always dip during budget battles with the legislature, and this one has proven a little bit more contentious uh, than the ones we've had in the past uh, two years. Um, I certainly remember, you know, those in Albany and many legislators, uh, you know, sitting around while those negotiations go on, so many issues on the table. But look what's on the table. Gun control, you know, reform to the gun control law, you know, minimum wage, um, long-term uh, high-income tax strategy. No one, this is not a governor who's ducking. And, and I think he has to get a lot of credit for that. Well, he seems to be ducking it on the fracking issue, right? The hydrofracking is in upstate New York, which is vital to a lot of, the economic revival of a lot of communities out there, that seems to be delayed, 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 delayed. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we, we keep setting different deadlines, and it, nothing seems to be happening. Wouldn't, wouldn't it make sense to, to find, if you're really 
campaigning as somebody who's really decisive to make a decision on this? I, I think the governor was very clear a few weeks ago when he when he said that uh, to the folks in the oil and gas industry, the proponents of fracking, they have to sell the public. And, and there's a lot of anxiety from good citizens upstate, concerned about economic development, who want to see jobs in their own community, but they're not convinced that this is a good idea. And I don't know a lot of elected officials who are going to go and ram something like this, which is a, a whole new way to, to do energy in New York, um, down the throats of communities um, that aren't sure whether or not they want it. So I, I do think that those folks who are proponents of fracking, you know, they have done a, a miserable, miserable job in terms of moving public opinion and going and blaming the governor, um, you know, who has many issues on his plate um, for not articulating a, a, a rationale which is really an industry's obligation to talk to the public about it. I think I, I think I think that's unfair. So the um, so the, blame... the numbers the numbers on fracking fracking has gotten less popular the more people have learned about it, and that never bodes well. Well, understandable, but it wasn't going to be time to make a decision. But we're we're here on spin class with uh, former assemblyman Ryan Carbon, uh, blogger, pundit, lobbyist, attorney. All, all different uh, ty- hats that he's wearing. And let's just talk a little bit local, micro, in your neck of the woods. The East Ramapo School District. Uh, interesting school district, one of two in the state where private school students outnumber public school students uh, quite quite considerably. And they're having a lot of issues right now. They're potentially facing a state takeover. What's going on over there? Uh, you know, I, I think that whether you send your folks to, uh, to private school, send your folks to, to public school, your heart's got to break for what's going on in, in, in our community here in the East Rampo School District. And, you know, I, I attended uh, um, those public schools for some of the years in my youth, and, and this was a school system that was really the toast of the state. Um, phenomenal educators, phenomenal proud history, um, and school governance has not really kept up with the changing demographics of the school district. There are over 20,000 kids in private school. You know, you have 8,000 kids in the public school. You have, you know, radically different cultures going on with the growth of the Orthodox Jewish community, um, you know, in Rockland. And that has really created a huge amount of tension. And, and that's a result of a lot of unresolved issues over the years and things simmering beneath the surface. And you have a lot of antagonism that's unfortunate because the bottom line is there are 30,000 kids that live in that district that we collectively has or have a responsibility to educate. And the state has a responsibility to educate. And because it's a unique school district, the way state this way the state allocates education dollars doesn't really work. Um, well, you explain don't get, that for you you explain that for a second. What do, what do you mean doesn't work? So you know, school districts have obligations to both private and public school students. You know, you have a the, the school district is busing a record amount of of kids. You have um, special education needs that get paid for for both public school and private school students. But the state reimbursements per student are heavily weighted, understandably, in favor of public school students. So when you have districts which are providing services, which they're required to do by the state to a large number of private school students, they don't get the same level of reimbursement. So when you have 100 private school kids in a school district, 300 kids in parochial schools, 1,000 kids in Catholic schools, 2,000 kids in yeshivas, you know, that, that's not going to make you or, or break you. But when you have the numbers like you have in East Ramapo, where you're, you're approaching, you know, where you have a, a three to one really split in favor of the students 
being educated in yeshivas and other parochial schools. Um, it's a yawning gap uh, that local taxpayers are just unable to, to, to make up. And, and I'm among those who believe that it's not so much a question of a state takeover of East Ramapo, but really a state partnership with East Ramapo. And, and I would hope that the conversation could pivot in that direction because the kind of everybody yelling at each other and some kind of a nasty rhetoric, you know, it doesn't really benefit, doesn't really benefit the kids. So th- that's kind of like the, the view on the issues. But the politics, Michael, the politics are very, very complicated. It's tribal, it's territorial. Um, there's a lot of sensitivity. And um, I think that folks outside the school district are going to ultimately need to, to get involved. You know, East Ramp has been a hot potato politically. Nobody wants to touch it. Um, but that's changing because the stakes have gotten so high. The school district didn't meet its obligations to one of these central education districts called BOCES. And so now you have a different kind of conversation. Assemblyman Ken Zabrowski proposing splitting the school district into a quasi-private school district and a quasi-public school district. That's getting a lot of talk out there. And I think that state leaders and other local elected officials are going to need to become part of the conversation because on their own, the constituents in East Ramapo, I think, are unable to resolve the issue. Let's talk for a second about the suburban politics. And school districts make up a big piece of suburban politics and a lot of people move to the suburbs from the city for the schools but suburban politics have evolved over time and i think if we're looking the the idea of the gop reinvention is is very much in the air how the republican party needs to come back and needs to speak to voters better all all that and you know if we i don't believe it's just an issue of social media as we seem to, as we seem to read, and I'm sure you probably agree with that. But let's just talk. I think if you need to look no further than the four counties immediately surrounding New York City, Rockland, Westchester, Nassau, Suffolk, all used to be heavily Republican. All used to be very much controlled by Republican, led by Republican county executives, and that uh, exists now in in Westchester, Rockland, and Nassau. Um, but you have a situation where it could go either way. They're no longer solidly Republican by any means. Uh, so talk about the suburban dynamic and how the suburban voter has shifted away from the Republican Party uh, towards the Democrats, and is that a trend that's likely to continue? I, I think it is a trend that is likely to continue. Um, you know, a lot of politics is ethnic-based, and as you have um, growing minority populations in the suburbs and those communities become um, more diverse, uh, you know, you're gonna, you're, you're gonna see a, a swing towards the, towards the Democrats. But I think, you know, a lot of the political sentiment in the suburbs, suburbs is very friendly for gun control. You know, the polling data shows that. Um, very sensitive on property tax issues, which is one of the places that I think why you've seen Governor Cuomo put so much, so much emphasis there. But, but what happens in the suburbs this year with these elections for county executive in Nassau and Westchester and Rockland? are going to set the stage for the governor's re-election narrative and whatever, whatever other ambitions he has. And they mean a lot for the Republican leader of the Senate, Dean Skelos, too. You have Ed Mangano, uh, a Nassau Republican incumbent, who's going to be sending off a, a challenge as a Democratic primary. Um, you know, uh, Tom Swazi and, uh, and, and, and Mr. Bender over there. So, you know, we're going to see how that, how that shakes out. But both high-profile, well-financed candidates. Um, and Mangano has tried to, you know, cut cloth as a fiscally responsible, socially moderate Republican in the, in the, model of, of Governor Pataki, uh, which was a very effective model in the suburbs. Uh, Rob Astorino in Westchester, who slayed the giant Andy Spano uh, four years ago in a, in a Westchester tax revolt um, that really shocked people, uh, also presenting a socially moderate 
economically responsible anti-tax perspective to the voters. And in my in my home county in Rockland, you, know, you have an open seat with uh, Scott Vanderhoff retiring after 20 years, and that's, you have a very contentious Democratic primary going on uh, between the mayor of Suffern, Dagan Lacourt, uh, David Freed, who is a, a former local judge and county legislator, and Elon Schoenberger, who chairs the legislature's powerful budget and finance committee. Um, this governor has focused a lot on the suburbs. That's why the tax cap has been at the top of the list. If you look at the old uh, 1994 election results in which the first governor, Cuomo, was toppled, uh, he was treated very, very harshly by suburban voters. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I think you see some of those issues at the top of the list. So the state politics and the local politics in those suburban counties are going to be threaded through each other, and I think there's going to be a lot of spotlight on that in the coming any predictions as far as uh, who might who might take some of these seats? So let's just talk about Nassau for a second, since it's my home county. Tom Swazi seems to want to get back in there. Uh, he was very surprisingly defeated by Ed Mangano, who I think has inherited a very difficult situation and, and actually done an effective job of managing it. Uh, extremely difficult county to govern. Tom Swazi, I'm sure, knows that. What, what's he looking to get back for? You know, I, I think the question Nassau voters are going to have for, for, for Mangano is really going to come down to whether they want to give him more time. Um, you know, he came in there, and, and, and he's, he's a, uh, a likable guy. I think people have warm feelings towards him personally, and people like Tom Swansea, too. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what the line and the sand in that election is. On the one hand, you have Mangano saying, I got a big mess. I'm getting things in the right direction. I need a little bit more time to do it. And Tom Swazi saying, you know, whatever Mangano has done in the past four years, he's not the guy to really take Nassau um, in, in, into the future. They both have strong political bases. They're both going to be very well financed. They're, neither one of them has name recognition issues. Um, and I think that, you know, other issues are going to emerge about you know, the management of county government, which are going to drive a little bit of the of the narrative of, the, of that race. You have the, you know, the Coliseum, which has been uh, – controversial over there over the course of the past few years it's going to that's going to play into that um but suburban voters are tax conscious and i think they're going to go for whoever they believe more realistically is going to be able to exert downward pressure on on property taxes so i think that that race is really going to be a a prism um of what direction and what kind of government suburban voters are uh, are looking for so, Ryan, one final question for you. How much does pro- or do proper uh, party labels matter to the voter, to the suburban voter, in an off-year election? You go into there, there's not a national election, there's not, no congressional, not these big issues, maybe these big social issues that turn a lot of voters away. It's a, it's a lot about the nuts and bolts of governments, of local government. So, but when people still carry their party labels with them, how, how much does that matter in a – in the 2013 elections, these suburban areas, it seemed uh, post in 2009 that there was a reaction. There was a lower turnout in the suburbs amongst the Democrats, and that led to these victories by Republicans. Is that the trend that might continue uh, in 2013? Um, I, I think the fact that gov- Democrats are feeling good about Governor Cuomo is going to help Democratic turnout, and I think the governor's uh, poll numbers will go on an upward trajectory after the state budget gets done. And uh, I think that his endorsement will be very uh, helpful and powerful to Democrats running in the fall. Um, you know, I, the governor has influence over labor union endorsements and campaign contributions, and that's obviously going to play a role. But voters, when it, they come to electing county executives, mayors, legislators, there is a partisan element to it, but there's also a kind of very 
intangible personal element. People get a little bit attached to who their mayors are, their local executives are, and, and they do look a lot at personal qualities, and they look a lot at just keeping the trains running on time, if you will. And if you're a good service provider as a local elected official and people feel that the government is being run in a courteous and efficient way, uh, you're going to get you're going to get reelected regardless of your party and regardless of the makeup of your of your district. I think you know you look at the New York City mayor's race, Michael, and you see some voters who are very very socially conservative, you know, flocking to support some of the very liberal Democrats that are running for mayor, and that's based really on a who do you think can run the government in a way that's going to take care of my neighborhood. So voters are very smart. Voters are very practical, um, and they will go with their gut on what they think is going to be you know, in kind of their best interest on a day-to-day basis. Because the local, the government that they deal with day-to-day is their local government. They may be angry about what goes on in Washington and yell at the television and your divide between your Fox News watchers and your MSNBC watchers, but the bottom line is, regardless of what cable station people are watching, they want their trash picked up, they want a cop on their block, they want their schools to function, and they don't want their community bulldozed, you know, to make room for some housing, which is, you know, incompatible with the reason they moved there. Okay, so that, well, that's what animates suburban voters. I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, there, as they as they say, there probably is no Republican or Democratic way to pick up the garbage, except in certain areas with uh, certain sanitary districts. But we'll leave that for a different discussion. <laughs> we'll leave that for another. So, time. Uh, former Assemblyman Carbon, thank you for joining us here on Spin Class, and uh, thank you for returning uh, once again. And we'll have you again uh, soon to uh, pick up the upcoming elections. Looking forward, Michael. I love the show. you got lots of fans out there. Thank you very much. Thank you. As we expand our reach uh, up the Hudson Valley, uh, we are, as always, going to switch gears uh, from the local to the international. And we have a very distinguished guest on the line. Uh, David Makovsky is the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Project on the Middle East Peace Process at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He's also an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University, and is an author and speaker on so many issues regarding Israel and the Middle East, and if uh, a fellow and also a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. Uh, there's way too many titles to go into. I'd spend the whole show doing it. So welcome, David, to Spin Class, David Makovsky. Good to be with you. So, David, uh, the president is in Israel. So a lot of people waited a very long time for this. And uh, what does it really mean? Uh, when it comes down to it, the fact that President Obama is now in Israel. Is anything tangible going to come of this? Look, I think uh, you have a situation that both Obama and Netanyahu have been reelected now. They're going to have to deal with each other for four more years. Uh, I think, you know, actually visiting Israel firsthand means that, doesn't mean that it eliminates the differences between them for the next four years, but it means that, Obama will have a, a more tangible understanding of a lot of the issues that the Prime Minister raises by dint of the fact that he's seen this area for himself. So you know, I think for the President, clearly it's important to connect with the Israeli public uh, because he's been attacked on a lot of issues that he doesn't talk about the historical attachment of the land. And I think he's going to go to the Shrine of the Book today, uh, and he already in his uh, arrivals, speech, you know, he talked about the, the historic attachment in a way that he has not in the past. So I think it can only deepen his understanding of Israel, and I think it's a very good thing. Let's just talk for a second about the new coalition as well. It came in yeah. just in time, yeah. right? It just it was yeah, amazing. There was, there was talk the trip might have to be delayed because right. they were still wrangling. So yeah. all of a sudden, the 
Israelis got their act together, cobbled the coalition together. It seems actually like it might be even pretty stable by Israeli standards. It's got 68 yeah. seats or so. But yeah. but yeah. Uh, but it's also a team of rivals, to borrow a right. term from right, uh, exactly. old American terms. So give us give us the rundown on the coalition. Look, you have a kind of a hybrid government in a certain way. On one hand, on domestic issues, I think it's very cohesive. Um, might be one of the most cohesive governments in a long time. Uh, because there's a common agenda, which is to find a way to um, deal with uh, the economic challenges of the middle class. I think B.B., Lapid, uh, Bennett, they see things very similarly in terms of free market reforms. Um, this is not a should not be taken advantage, you know, not be you know taken for granted. I mean. The Histadrut is, the trade union has always been very strong. Uh, you've got three people at the top now that, that have a clear sense of what they want to do in terms of cutting red tape. And um, this is, um, you know, whether they can do infrastructure things, trains, and uh, whether it's either with ports, a lot of different things that, like, people Americans don't think of. I mean, I give you something small, like, like the ports in Israel are closed the, most of the day, you know, only open 8 to 4 because the unions say, no, they can't be open beyond that. I, I mean, I, and therefore Israel's imports, exports are limited. I mean, I can see, you know, just some of these little things that can have big economic consequences, things that would uh, deal with the uh, centralization of, of, of wealth, of anti, you know, there's no, the antitrust legislation that is so important in America, I could see that being bolstered in Israel, too. That's funny, because so, we look at Israel as this young, dynamic, yeah. high-tech country with all these great entrepreneurs and opportunity, right. but a lot yeah. of it, you're, you're talking about things yeah. that are, right. you would the not be associated. Very strong, very strong. So you got to, like, you know, you gotta, you're going to see things here that, like, you'll, you know, that are, are very important in terms of there's a kind of a mind meld, I would say, between these three guys in a way that has gotten lost in the shuffle because they're fighting over which the portfolios, uh, who has what. But there's a, they're, they're very similar in that regard. Now, the other issue is going to be, you know, a little more contentious, but on the domestic front, there's a conceptual meeting of the minds, but that doesn't always translate itself. And Netanyahu will be the most nervous of the three, which is, how do you inter- integrate the Haredim, and the ultra-Orthodox into Israeli life, into the military, into the workforce? How do you wean the Haredim away from being Israel's premier welfare class? You know, this is not a small matter. And if you care about Israel's economy and Israel's place in the world, then I think, uh, and the fact that Israelis feel so overtaxed, um, then I think you have to, you're going to have to get at this point. And this is where most of the Israeli public is at. I think with Bibi, he has seen the Haredim as a kind of a loyal base, and he doesn't want to offend them because he believes after every party you have to clean up. And, uh, you know, he's going to need the Haredim maybe down the road if the government falls apart for whatever reason. After so every he, party you have to clean up. That excellent uh, excellent metaphor there. But I'm saying that the Gadol, as they would say in Israel, these are two issues where there's a larger consensus in the country. And I just saw a poll, 68% of the public likes the new government. So I think the split screen is that on the first half of the screen, you're going to have a domestic agenda that is popular. And, uh, you know, uh, and I think that these guys want to move. 
So, um, and you've seen little symbolic uh, dimensions of this, you know, up here saying, you know, got to cut wasted government instead of 30 ministers, we could do with 20. And, uh, you know, they did very well. You know, they, they, he said 18, they did just a little above that. But uh, in ways that Israel never has been able to do. So that, so that part is the, uh, say, the easier part, but it's the part that uh, is, is easy to, to get your head around. We're talking then with David Makovsky here on Spin Class, a uh, fellow at the Washington Institute Near East Policy and the Council on Foreign Relations, author of numerous books. David, we are in a situation where you're, you're talking domestically. The Israeli government yeah. is focused domestically. The, all the parties seem to be focused on these domestic right. issues. And I'm sure Obama only wants to talk about right. all the existential issues around right. the peace process, exactly. Syria, and the like. How, how is that going to... If, if Netanyahu's looking on one side and Obama wants to drag him to the other side, how's that going to yeah. play out? No, because the truth is Bibi cares about the other side, too. It's not that he has to drag him. You know what I mean? Like, in other words, when you're talking about Iran, uh, that's something that's very much in Netanyahu's mind. Now, it's true that the new government doesn't have the experience the old one does. You know, Ayub Barak, the defense minister, he's been at this for a while. Um, now, in the case of Bogi Alon, he's also been a chief of staff. It's not like he's a... Ne- a neophyte, and this running the strategic affairs ministry is like an in-house think tank that he's been doing. So he's experienced as well, and he's been in the group of the, what they call in Hebrew the Shminiah, the eight, the Octet. Um, but you're losing Dan Meridor, who's got enormous experience. You're losing Ehud Barak. You're losing Benny Begin. So these are people with experience that are gone, and now you got these new guys coming in, and they don't know about this stuff. They have not been focused enough, probably Bennett, uh, on, on, on the security question of Iran and, uh, you know, the Lapid. Now, they're, they're serious guys and they're, they're smart guys and you have a feeling they're going to learn. But there's more of a knowledge deficit than there's been in the past. But it doesn't mean for Netanyahu that this isn't important to the opposite. He's, this is a huge issue for him. And if you want me to get in the weeds with you about where his differences are going to be with Obama Absolutely. on Iran. We want to be in the okay. weeds. Right. Look, here, conceptual, think of this way. They all agree on the principle. Nobody wants Iran to have a nuclear weapon. So you don't have to convince the other guy. That's the, 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 the starting point of the conversation. We all agree. Okay. Question is, what do you do about it? Now, you know, three you know, different things, four different things. One is the diplomacy is going on now. Uh, what's the deal you're trying to cut with Iran? Huge question. And if that fails, are there economic sanctions to tighten that will make a difference? Economic sanctions taking a huge bite out of Iran, but hasn't slowed them down their program. Point three is if the economics doesn't work, the sanctions don't work, some say just add a trade embargo, what would be um, an American, would the U.S. strike? And if not, there's Israel. And so you've got, basically, this is, you know, you're coming down to, you know, pretty much down to the crunch time, you know, what what do you want the diplomacy to achieve? Um, and where the weeds are in this is Israel, if you remember, everyone remembers BB at the UN with the red line, you know, the massive yeah, that, marker. the little cartoon but, thing. Right. So that was uh, the cartoon bomb, right? So he said, like, if they get one bomb's worth of 20% enriched fuel, fuel is the hardest part of the bomb. Um, if they're able to, to have one you know, one bomb's worth of 20% enrichment in 30 to 40 days. At the time of their choosing, they can just, you know, amp it up, uh, and it'll be at weapons-grade fuel. It won't be at reactor-grade fuel. So Obama's saying, okay, let's, you know, let's say don't, you know, have enriched 
uranium at 20%, if that's where BB draws his line. But BB's view was that 20% should be a causal spell It doesn't mean anything under 20% is kosher. And so he'll say, listen, Mr. President, you got them on the ropes. They're in the corner. The sanctions are fantastic. It's never been so good. We're never going to be able to keep the world so united around the sanctions. Um, what we need to do is, is use our leverage to the max and, and clear out all the, their stockpile. We should demand that they get rid of the, the, the 5.9 tons worth of low-enriched uranium because even at, the, at these lower levels, that's 70% of the way to getting to the high, you know, the high enriched. They've got second-generation uh, uh, centrifuges that could spin five times faster. They could take four bombs that they have, let's say out of you know six tons, 5.9. That's you know 1.5 is one bomb. That's four bombs. And uh, if we're gonna, you know, let's let's cash in the chips. Let's do it all. Let's go big, Mr. President. Let's try to do a comprehensive deal with the Iranians. So and, Perry, oh, sorry, David. But, I, and, but yeah. I'm saying, but, they, but you know, Obama could say, look, there might be a, be a bridge too far. Diplomacy is the art of the possible. i got to keep the Russians, the Chinese. There's a zillion details here. And if I'm, I'm going to stay focused on a narrower thing. You drew your, your cartoon bomb with a red line at 20%. Let's focus on the 20%. We'll deal with the other stuff later. And BB might say, wait a second. If you, you know, make cut a deal at 20%, then you're going to have to pay them. You're going to have to lift, let's say, sanctions. I don't know if it's the oil embargo from Europe, you know, and uh, in so doing, uh, you, you know, you're going to, you know, loosen the noose around their neck, and there'll never be a second round. In the Middle East, there's nothing more permanent than that, which is temporary. So you might say this is only the first round, but it might be the last round, too. This is our chance. Let's go big, and let's clear out everything there. And and I think this is going to be an issue of debate. I mean, there's a, there's an, I don't want to bore you with all these details, but like there's this thing called the International Atomic Energy Agency's recent report on Iran that says they actually, when it comes to the 20% enriched uranium, it's gone down from 180 kilograms to 167. And BB will say, I told you so, you know, that uh, if you, you have a red line, like I drew it at the UN, the Iranians will internalize it. You've got to draw more red lines. And Obama might say, well, you know what, maybe we have more time then if they actually, the thing is giving me more space. And they'll say, yeah, but they got these second-degree centrifuges. Even at a lower enrichment baseline, they could go up very quickly to the full amount very shortly. So all I'm saying is these are two examples on the Iran issue where you could share the same objective, but you could have differences on strategy, on policy, on how do you get to that objective. And that's just one case of where I think some of the discussion is going to be. Shimon Peres gave an interview where he implied, uh, at ABC News, I believe, uh, where he implied that when the time comes to attack Iran, and he believes the time will come to attack, it's going yeah. to be the United States attacking, and it's not going to be Israel. Yeah. Well, look, Obama keeps saying, I'm not bluffing. And, and Biden I, said that at APAC. He kept saying, this right, president yeah, doesn't. he wagged his APAC, finger at everybody and said, this president doesn't bluff. The United States right. doesn't bluff. Right. So, I mean, and, you know, I work with Dennis Ross in my think tank, and he was in the White House. And he says to me the same thing. You don't know this guy. You know, he's, he doesn't bluff. So, I mean, it could be that, indeed, that is the, you know, that is it. But we don't know that for sure. And the Israelis believe that they need their own independent capabilities because they don't want to be... It's one thing to say they have a close relation with the U.S., it's nothing to say they're utterly reliant on the United States for their own defenses. 
and that's was not what the Jewish state was for. So I think these, I don't know if that's going to be utterly, you know, I don't think Obama's going to tell him today, you know, while they're having their gefilte fish at dinner, uh, you know, I'm going to hit them on, uh, you know, October 25th. But uh, I think they've got to try to thrash out it. Do they have a common criteria for what is a diplomatic breakthrough? And what are the implications if, if there is not? Is there going to be a trade embargo on Iran? Um, you know, I think there's, Obama's not going to want to get boxed in, but he's got to say, you've got you to trust them, me. And I think that their relationship, which is how everyone talks about having its ups and downs, frankly, is going to be tested on this issue more than on any other issue. So this is, the thing is, the public won't see a lot of this because this will be out of closed doors. They're not going to hold a press conference on this. No, I mean, you know, they'll talk in generalities. We sure. don't want Iran to get a bomb. We all agree with that, you know. But beyond that, that beyond the headline, you know, I don't know if they're going to give the public any details. And I think both know one thing. They're going to have to deal with each other for the next four years. Well, then it's so good that I, they're getting acquainted. Yeah, so I think the feeling is they've, they've known each other already. Look, I think Obama thinks of a BB that he's not uh, doesn't have the political vision of Rabin, and the BB says, you know, Obama might not have the interventionist instincts of John McCain, but the fact is, this is what we have. They both are sober in terms of what they can achieve, and uh, they know they've been dealing with each other for four years. Obama says there's no leader he's met more with than BB, and I think they 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 just they know they're going to have to deal with each other. So what? You know, some of the sessions might be pointed, but the media will never know it. And uh, I think the, the idea will be is to try to put on as good a face as possible amid hope that they can work something out. So we're here with Dave Mikofsky on Spin Class. And speaking of interventionists and non-interventionists, uh, let's talk about Syria for a second. Yeah. I think the foreign policy of the United States is probably pretty muddled uh, on Syria. Uh, John Kerry gave a very... Interesting statement uh, yesterday that uh, President Obama has made it really clear that we won't stand in the way of anybody else helping the Syrian rebels, but we're not going to do it. Yeah. And at the same time that Syria uh, reportedly, or I think it's now been verified, that they're using yeah. chemical weapons in a, on a village of Khan al-Assal. And uh, you had uh, Mike Rogers, the uh, yeah. chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, saying that it's time to act. So yeah. the far, U.S. foreign policy is all over the place, or it's it's, un, it's extremely unclear when it comes to Syria. That's right. No, there's no doubt. Look, I think I just came from Israel this, this past, where I've been in this week. I don't think the Israelis have much belief that the U.S. is going to come in there big and it's going to be decisive in any way. Uh, I think their biggest fear is like a kind of a, you know, like these stores on, I don't know if it's on 42nd Street or wherever it is where you say, you know, or they used to be on 42nd Street, now it's gotten too expensive. You know, going out of business sale, you know, liquidation sale. <laughs> it stays up for years, I, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and they've got unbelievable rockets. What does Hezbollah take from that? You know, so this is like, um, this is really, you know, this is a big deal. Um, Israel's got to be sure that, you know, they, you saw there was an interception of this SA-17, uh, these, you know, and there's more of this stuff. There's some advanced anti-ship uh, rockets that have been, uh, you know, called the Yahunt or something that could hit Israeli ships before they leave the ports, you know. And so this is going to be like... Uh, 
you know, this is not a simple deal here. And I think Israel, Bibi will probably tell Obama, look, you'll do what you're going to do on the chemicals and this and that. That's your business. But our business is to make sure that Hezbollah, who are our enemies, do not get a hold of this kind of going out of business sale, you know, liquidation sale, uh, as the regime unravels in Syria and then tries to move it into Lebanon, or maybe even sets up depots inside Syria and in friendly parts of, the, of, of Syria. So that's where I think Israel is focused on, the, what they call the strategic weaponry. And I think they're going to tell Obama, look, you know, got it, we might have to hit them more. Uh, but Israel cannot allow, you know, the, the Hezbollah to have a windfall because some guy's going out of business. So this is, I think that's where Israel's focus is, is, is highest at this time. Where do you see the international community's red line vis-a-vis the use of chemical weapons here? And well, what, very, everyone's asking that question this morning. What, what, what is it that they can do about it? Look, I don't know. Does the United States attack it? If they see guys going after it? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure. You know, but when the President of the United States says there will be consequences if you do this, then, I mean, that American credibility is at stake. Right. And, and that's a big deal. Okay, so David, one final topic I just want to cover very quickly uh, is, is as it relates, I guess, to American credibility is Afghanistan. And yeah. maybe you could just shed some light for the casual viewer on this guy, Hamid Karzai. No, because... I'm not. I'm no expert. <laughs> I leave that to others. I have a hard enough time keeping up with Israelis and Arabs. I leave the Afghanis to people who... Uh... You know, uh, okay, then more, fine. more specialized than me. Well, I was hoping you would you would give me a little bit more, but then I'll stick to the topic that you know, okay? Yeah. Hamas and uh, Fatah. Uh, ultimately, where, where are we going? Where are the Palestinians going with their internal struggle? Look, I don't see this impasse being resolved anytime soon. I mean, Hamas basically says, oh, yeah, we'll have a united government, but we don't like your security cooperation with Israel because you and the Israelis, you, go, you hunt Hamas people in the West Bank. I mean, there's no commonality right there. And uh, also, Hamas is real, is getting all the support from the Qataris, $400 million. They want to take over the PLO from the inside. And that's something that is like, for the, for the, you know, the Palestinian leadership, that's their crown jewel. That's, that's, excuse me, their legitimacy is rested in that, and they, and they feel it's a hostile takeover. So their view is, no, 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 we could agree on elections. We could agree on a technocratic government, but we can't agree on a hostile takeover. So um, I just think it's one of these things where it's words, because, you know, I know it's hard for Jewish people to hear this, but look at every society. If you say you want unity, it's like motherhood and apple pie, you know what I mean? So you say it, but between saying it and doing it, it's two separate things. So I just don't see it happening right now. Well, what what does that mean vis-a-vis if Obama wants to push the peace processes forward and yeah. there's nobody, there's no certainty on the other side? I, I think as uh, our last week's guest, uh, Dan Senor, called it, there's no interlocutor. Uh, good uh, good word for radio. There's no interlocutor yeah. on the Palestinian side. Where do we go? How, how do you how do you come to that solution, or how do you propose a solution when there there's no, there's nobody to talk to? No, look, it's, I don't want to get in an argument with Dan, who I, you know, respect, but I, I was in Ramallah, too. I mean, they, look, they want to, you know, they say they want to talk to Israel, but they feel that Israel 
is putting forward a pre, you know, a precondition by building, expanding settlement. So their view is, stop that, then let's talk. And the Israelis say, no, no, that's a precondition. So who's putting the precondition? And we go round and round and round and round with the same point. And um, so there's, there's differing ideas on what to be done, what can be done. I my my concern is that if we just stay at an impasse, there will ultimately be radicalization. I think that would be bad for Israel. And I think if you care about the demographic situation over there, you, you know you're concerned about that as well. So. I think there has to be a way of, see, part of it is the Israelis say, you know, they always say two states, but they used to say two states for two peoples, now they don't say that as much. We have to return to that idea, I think. Uh, I think for someone like Bogi Yawon, the new defense minister, he looks at these wordings as, as examples. Ah, oh, they want two states, but they are not willing to say the words two peoples. Now, they always did, and they also Abbas used to negotiate even when there was settlement. But um, look, he sees the, the you know the new Middle East is uh, very tumultuous and volcanic, and uh, he's viewed uh, by some as like kind of the old order, you know, the older secularist, and uh, and uh, Hamas wants to pounce. Uh, oh, you know, he's giving away to the Israelis. I just think that there has to be a way to get around some of the some of these issues because I am concerned the outgrowth of a longer term impasse is. God forbid a blow up, and and this is this is not good for anybody. So I think that this is where Kerry has to keep the focus on. Maybe you could say Israel, excuse me, will not you know agree to um, expand settlements beyond the fence, you know, beyond the blocks. Eighty percent of the settlers live in five percent of the land, largely adjacent to the old border, the old boundary of 1967. So there's a way to do this, I think, and uh, and that might signal for you know forget the Palestinians even for a minute. Even if you think Dan's right, there's no partner. Uh, it would be a way to signal to the Europeans and to the Americans that Israel is not out to gobble up the West Bank. It wants to build in five percent of the land, and there will be uh, land swaps for this. And I think this is something that um, you know would be understood here. And but when there is no if you don't deepen, you don't deepen your connection to the blocks. If you make no distinction between the blocks and the non-blocks, but with Israel more isolated in the world, this is something that needs to be addressed. My concern is the Palestinians see this isolation and they think the world is on our side and that the Israelis are alone, and that's not good. And they're a little too confident right now that they're you know, they're on the high road, so to speak, and. Uh, and I hope they don't go to the International Criminal Court and think and then Israel will bring their suit and this will get tied up. And in the end, you know, we're, we're left with the same problems. So I just think that this is a big detour, and I, I wish the Palestinians did not have such overconfidence the way they do right now. Okay, David, last question for you on this, and I really appreciate your, your extended time here, is – how long do you give this Israeli government? Do you feel that this is a, a stable government that's workable, given all some of the tensions and the rivalries between some of the uh, personalities? I, look, I, I think I think with the last government, people thought it wouldn't last either, and it lasted four years, and it would have gone to term even. Once these guys get in, I tend to think that they, you know, they, they, you don't leave the government so fast. And frankly, it's 
if Bennett left because he thought that there was limitations on settlement, then uh, beyond the fence or whatever, you know, Yechimovich of the Labor Party has said she would support it from the outside. So I think that uh, I think it might prove to be more durable than people give it credit for. Okay. Well, David Bukowski uh, with the Washington Institute on Near East Policy, the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, thank you for joining us here on Spin Class. Hope to have your cogent analysis uh, on in the future. Delighted and wish all your viewers a Chag Pesach Kasher To you too. Thank you, David. Thank you. This is Spin Class. And just to make a closing statement, I talked a little bit about the case or the saga of an assemblyman from Brooklyn named William Boyland. And I, I really want to express, I think it's important to express outrage at certain politicians who seem to stay in office despite some pretty outlandish and outrageous behavior. William Boyland was indicted and he was actually exonerated uh, in federal courts uh, over a bribery scandal that also ensnared some other politicians like Anthony Seminario and Carl Kruger. And he stayed in office and he then got indicted again. Why did he get indicted the second time? He got indicted because he was soliciting bribes in order to pay his lawyers and they got him on tape for that. At the same time, he was also collecting what are known as per diem payments. Per diems are the reimbursements that every elected, every legislator in Albany gets for traveling to Albany and for staying over. And it's a uh, hundred and something, hundred and change, hundred forty dollars or so, hundred sixty dollars. Not exactly sure. We can research that, but that's not really the point. He was collecting those on days that he was in court in Brooklyn. And he was collecting those on days he was meeting with federal prosecutors. And he was collecting those on days that he was very obviously elsewhere, obviously not in Albany. So then the controller does an investigation after, of course, it was done previously by a news organization. That's typically what happens. The controller decides to do And they said, oh, you owe $76,000 back to the state treasury for all these per diem payments he got. That's a lot of per diems, a lot of days that he wasn't actually in Albany he was claiming to be. And then... He says, I'm not paying it. Of course, he has to go ahead and pay, but the controller says, okay, if you're not paying it, then we're not giving you any more. So then he went to the judge in his current trial because he's been indicted again for bribery, uh, this time in uh, in Brooklyn, uh, by the U.S. attorney. And he is now saying, well, I need a public defender because, of course, he couldn't pay for the lawyer because he couldn't get those bribes initially, but also now he has to pay his own expenses to go to Albany to be a legislator. So because he's still in the Assembly and because he got returned to office and because he has now precluded for getting these per diems because it seems that he lied about them and now refuses to offer any any type of documentation or any type of reimbursement to the state treasury for all this, because of this, now we have to foot the bill for his defense. I don't know, folks. Shocking. Shocking behavior. So thank you for joining us on the Thursday Night Extravaganza here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for the Book of Life with Charlie Harari, and we will speak to you next week. Actually, next week we'll be off for Pesach. So two weeks, and we will see you then. Thank you. Thank you.